Good morning, church. Welcome to each of you, and particularly, or especially, or introditionally, you who are watching online. We appreciate your participating with us this morning. For you who are relatively new to LBC, I'm Roger Poppin, who had the great honor of serving here as pastor for 20 years uh, during the turn of the century. And, and, and if you're asking which century, uh, you can leave now. But uh, 89 to 09 were the years that I had the privilege of serving here. And it is my privilege this morning, thanks to Pastor Eric, to wrap up this summer series that we've been going through in 1 Samuel. The narrative of this book revolves around three main characters. Samuel, uh, Israel's esteemed uh, judge and prophet. Saul, Israel's first king, David, number two. These closing chapters end with the final story or deal with the final and sad story of Saul's final years and tragic death. And as I was preparing this, I, I, I wondered, I wonder what epitaph would be appropriate for him, for Saul. Epitaph is not a term we use or see very often these days, but it refers to a succinct phrase that's used in memory of a person who has died. And it's often written on the tombstone's inscription, or it's inscribed on the tombstone. Jeannie and I recently visited the cemeteries in Porterville and Shafter, where our former spouses are buried. And what we mostly saw were uh, burial sites identified by simple headstones with a name, a date of birth, date of death, and sometimes including a succinct uh, epitaph. Some examples of shorter ones would be beloved husband and daddy, or beloved mother and mother and wife, good and faithful servant. I discovered some humorous ones online, such as, excuse my dust, or I was hoping for a pyramid, or my favorite one, I told you I was sick. <laughs> if God could write your epitaph for all to see, what would you like him to write? What phrase would you like to summarize your life? Let's think about that a little bit as we look at these closing years of Saul's life. I'm covering eight chapters here this morning, and I'm going to try to focus on a, a central idea. But as I see it, Saul's major problem throughout this narrative was one of self-obsession a common human heart disease. It's at the core of sin. It's expressed in a variety of ways. We might be obsessed with how we look. 
We might be obsessed with what we have, or especially with what we don't have but would like. We might be obsessed with what people think of us. Or we might be obsessed about the future. Anxiety and fears about health, death, other issues that life and the future may bring. Here in 1 Samuel, a big issue in Saul's life and career was his self-obsessed fear of the Philistines particularly. Chapter 13 begins with a brief description of uh, Israel winning a battle against this enemy. But the war had just begun and the Philistines are mounting another attack against Saul and Israel. And the text in chapter 13 on, it says that on this particular threat, the Israelites hid themselves in caves and holes and rocks and cisterns with some even fleeing the country. And Paul with, and the terrified crowd that was following him uh, were scheduled to meet with Samuel in seven days. Uh, the plan being that Samuel would offer this sacrifice to the Lord and uh, the goal being to get the Lord on their side as they face this battle. But Samuel was late. And so Saul panicked and he, he assumed the role, which was a forbidden role for him, of priest. And he offered the sacrifice himself. And as soon as he did that, Samuel arrived and said, what have you done? And instead of repenting of his sin and saying, oh man, he justified himself, making excuses to which Samuel, representing God, said in verse 13, you have done foolishly. So your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. In other words, Saul, you're on your way out. And, and rather than accepting, humbly accepting that statement of judgment, Saul became obsessed with jealousy toward David. This man after God's own heart, whom he resented and who was going to replace him. So later in chapter 18, both Saul and his commander, uh, David, were successfully fighting their common enemy, the Philistines. And verse 6 of chapter 18 says, as they were coming home, when, Saul, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, songs of joy, musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Wrong thing for an insecure, self-obsessed king to hear. So reading on, Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. 
He said, they have ascribed to David 10,000. And to me, they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Why so jealous? Why so angry? Self-obsession. Threatened by David's success and growing popularity. So two verses later, he attempts to kill David by throwing a spear at him twice. Fortunately, he missed. But self-obsession led to further attempts to eliminate David from his life, causing David to often flee and hide. And then as we come to chapter 24, Paul has another encounter with David, and this one almost costing his life. It says, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it has seemed good to you. And then David arose, and he stealthily cut off a corner of his robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him. Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. David is saying, who am I? Who am I to so show such disrespect, such evil toward this king? He's the Lord's anointed. I may not understand why God chose such a weak and insecure man, but who am I? to wish him gone. What an example, particularly for us who might be struggling with the political leaders of our nation and world, people whom the sovereign God puts into positions of leadership. You know, God was displeased even at the beginning when Israel wanted to be like the other nations who had a king. God says, okay, Samuel, that's what they want. Give them what they think they want and anoint Saul as their king. He's my choice for my purposes. Therefore, Samuel, anoint him as king. So back to Saul, finishes relieving himself in the cave. He leaves the cave. He's followed out by David. Saul doesn't even know he's there. And he calls out to 
Saul and says in so many words, Saul, you won't believe what just happened. While you were doing your thing, my guys and I were deeper in the cave. They urged me to take advantage of your vulnerable state, kill you right then and there. But I did go and just cut off a corner of your robe, Saul. And then he said, Saul, I shouldn't have done that. Verse 16, Saul responds. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is that your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established by your hand. Oh, David, you are so much more righteous than I am. You have repaid my self-obsessed, evil, jealous, hateful attitude towards you with goodness and kindness toward me. You could have killed me, but you didn't. And now I know you will replace me. You'll be the new king, just as God said back there in chapter 13 when I was again disobedient. Seemingly a sincere confession, but his self-obsession continued to haunt him. For we move into chapter 28 and see that he is again hunting for David. And as Saul and his men go into a deep sleep, and the text says, brought on by the Lord, David has another opportunity to remove the very one who is seeking to eliminate him. So chapter 26, verse 6, David said to Abimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. And then said Abishai to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. And I won't strike him twice. Once will do it. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water, and let's go. So David moves out of the camp, and he calls out to Saul and tells him again, let me tell you what happened. 
And Saul's response, verse 21, another confession. Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I've acted foolishly, have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, here's the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I will not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. May he deliver me out of all tribulation. And then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. His confession, I've sinned. I've acted foolishly. I've made a great mistake. Another translation uses the phrase, I've played the fool. What an idiot I've been. But knowing that Saul's spirit was still self-obsessed with hate, chapter 27, verse 1, David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. I know he's going to get me. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the boundaries of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. What's he saying? I know that Saul's confession to me cannot be trusted. He's a foolish, self-obsessed, desperate king. I'm going to respect him, going to honor what the Lord has appointed. But I'm out of here. I'm better off in enemy territory. But that phrase used by Saul, I've acted foolishly. I've played the fool. Even though he said that in the immediate context of this close encounter with death at the hands of David, it really is a description of his whole life and career. We see his foolishness, his sin throughout the narrative. It's a story of Saul not trusting God's instructions, not trusting God's promises, not trusting God's timing. He didn't trust God's sovereignty. I, Saul, don't trust God. So I'm going with my self-obsession and I'm going to do what I want to do, what I think is best. Do you ever do that? Lord, I know what you say about moral issues, but self-obsession, I think differently. And I'm going to go please myself. I'm going to please the boss, me. I don't care what you say. Or, Lord, I know what you say about money. 
what it is, how to use it, how to lay up eternal heavenly treasures rather than temporary earthly stuff. But you know, Lord, I, I don't really trust you on that one. I, I'm a little, I think I'm an exception. I, I believe that I can serve both God and money. So I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with self-obsessed me. And Lord, you know, regarding my relationship with my fellow believers here, you're calling me to worship and fellowship and serve my church family while pursuing unity and harmony. But Lord, have you met these people at LBC? Some have hurt me. Some have offended me. Some are such hypocrites. I don't even like some of them. They must be sinners. And Lord, I'm not about to do your thing, which is to humble myself, be merciful and forgiving, engaging in one another love. Lord, that's not me. I'm not going to do it. I don't care what you say. Now Saul, obviously, when confronted by David, offered what seemed to be sincere confessions. But the actions that followed revealed they were confessions without repentance. And I see a principle here that if you don't remember anything else this morning, please take this with you. Confession of sin without repentance from sin leads to isolation, separation from God. By confession, I mean, I agree with you, God, uh, about my sin. I see it in your word. It's pretty clear. I sense it in my heart. I agree. I confess. Repentance means, okay, I'm going to change. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to turn from sin and toward God. But the principle, confession without repentance always leads to separation. And that becomes obvious as we come to chapter 28. The story of Saul is... uh, and his desperate search for help. Verse 3 of chapter 28, it says, Samuel died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. And that was a good thing, for God told the people in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that such practitioners were an abomination to the Lord, were not even to be found in the land. If they stay, murder them, kill them, have them killed, capital punishment. So at least Saul is doing a good thing here by getting them out of the land. Mediums, necromancers, sorcerers, witches, they're all similar terms to refer to a group of demon-influenced, even demon-possessed who are individuals who are into the occult type stuff. 
And they, through their psychological trickery and their deceitful schemes and practices, their spooky seances, all that goes along with that, while advertising, I can contact your relatives. I can contact your friends. We can get some guidance from them. For a fee, of course. A former member of LBC died here some time ago. This past week, I get a Facebook friend request from him. Apparently, I have direct contact. <laughs> or maybe it says something about Facebook. I don't know. But seriously, it's no wonder that God commanded that they be removed from the land. For those who dabble in such practices, open the door, not only for satanic influence in their lives, but in the lives of their clients. Now, even though Saul ordered them to leave the land, he knew that some remained in the land and were operating illegally in the black market, if you will. So Paul, being desperate for help, he asks for servants to Locate a medium, a witch. Why? God is silent. He's silent. He's not speaking to me. And why is that? Saul, too much confession of sin without repentance from sin, thus separation from God. The psalmist said, you know, if I regard iniquity in my heart, if I hold on to sin, if I don't acknowledge it, confess it, repent of it, the Lord will not hear me. So in light of the setting that Saul has died and the Philistines are again pounding on the nation's door, verse 5 says that when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by urim or by prophet. So in desperation, Saul secretly seeks out this medium, disguising himself, and he asks her to contact Samuel for him. I need some help from Samuel. And amazingly, the account goes on to tell us, Samuel appears. Apparently, even before the witch began her routine, causing her to, to scream. Why? This isn't how it works. This isn't supposed to happen. Something unusual is going on here. With my other clients, you know, I've, I've kind of tricked them, and I went through all of this seance and stuff and this deceit and this fakery. I've never been able to bring someone really from the dead before. This is real. This is scaring me to death. You see, God, we may not understand all of that, but one thing, one thing it illustrates, God, for his purposes, can intervene in any situation, no matter how wicked it might be. So Samuel appears, and he says, beginning of verse 15, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up 
Again, I think that's a little humorous. Why are you bothering me? Saul answered, I'm in great distress. For the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand, given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. However, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the land of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Bottom line, Samuel says, you're done, Saul. Israel will be defeated by the Philistines. Your sons are going to be killed. You're going to die as well. You'll all be with me in the realm of the dead tomorrow. And so as... We move into chapter 31. That's exactly what happened. The Philistines, verse uh, 31, uh, fought against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and Merimalki, Shuai, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. This Saul, then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. Is that not a sad story? <clears throat> so self-obsessed that he couldn't trust and obey God, leading to separation from God. The bottom line reason for his death is stated in 1 Chronicles. So David died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord and that he did not keep the command of the Lord. Also consulting a medium, seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over David the son of Jesse, a breached faith, a broken faith. Another translation puts it, Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He had a belief in God. He, had, he was aware of his sin, but it wasn't a belief, 
accompanied by trusting God to the point of obedience. An awareness of God, an awareness of sin, but not to the point of submitting to God and to repentance, change. You know, as I conclude, I had a weird thought this week. What if this is my last sermon? I thought, you know, before the year is over, I'll turn 80. As the aging process continues physically, cognitively, I don't know what the future holds. One guy, an individual coming in this morning, saw this and he said, are you on oxygen? I don't know if this is my last sermon. Could be. But if it is, I, I'm glad it turned out that I'm covering these, this, this life of Saul. And I would like to end what I share this morning with a challenge. Think about your epitaph. What God might write about you. Ask yourself, would it be more like David's or Saul's? A proposed epitaph for David, taken from chapter 13, might be, here lies a man after God's heart. I would like that one. He wasn't perfect by any means. He wasn't very, he was at times self-obsessed with when he committed adultery and then felt he had to cover it up with further crime. But you know, when he was confronted by Nathan, it, boy, he said, oh man, almost a relief. He acknowledged it. He talked to God about it, often seen in Psalms, particularly chapters 32 and 51. With some psalms, he expresses frustration with lots of why questions. Why Saul or why these enemies? Why this? Why that? But he also wrote songs which reflected his trust in God through it all. On the other hand, I propose that Saul's epitaph would be taken from chapter 26. Here lies a man who played the fool. That was his life. He played the fool. By breaking faith with the Lord, he demonstrated the foolishness of a self-obsessed heart. Saul or David, whose heart most resembles your heart?
If you're pursuing a David-like heart, I praise God for you. I encourage you, keep moving in that direction. You'll never regret it. If your heart is more like a Saul-like foolish heart, you'll regret it if you stay there. But you don't have to. Becoming more like David won't develop overnight, but it begins with believing who Jesus is, believing what he did for you on the cross, believing that he, what he accomplished through his resurrection, believing that by faith in him, you will receive his forgiveness, you will receive resurrection life, and you can turn your life around, and that, that turning can enable you to rise above a Saul-like life to a David-like life. Foolishness to wisdom. A self-obsessed heart to God's heart. You'll still have fits of obsession and sin for sure. But sincere confession plus repentance will keep the relationship with God open and growing and sin will decrease as Jesus increases. Whereas the wages of a Saul-like obsession is always death. And by, in that context, I mean spiritual death, eternal death, no connection. And you know, it's never too late to change to a from now on heart. From now on, Lord, I'm going to pursue a David heart. I'm going to avoid a foolish heart. Never too late. The choice is yours. Would you pray with me? What would you like to say to the Lord this morning? Lord, this has been my heart. Lord, this is what I want. I want your heart, a David-like heart. I confess my Saul-like obsession with self, pride. So Lord, I confess, I claim your forgiveness, so grateful for it. And from this day on, with your help, O oh Lord, I want to be known as a man, a woman after God's heart. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.